Welcome to an overdrive version of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. Well, as I promised in my last podcast, I was going to do a reading from Khrushchev's memoirs. Uh, the book is called Khrushchev Remembers, The Last Testament. Uh, the introductions are done by Edward Crankshaw, who I've mentioned in the podcast. Uh, Gerald Schechter is the other one, and it was translated and edited by uh, Strobe Talbot. It's an older book. Uh, I purchased it used. It was uh, published back in uh, 1974, so quite a while ago. And uh, according to what I've read about this book, this was taken from recordings that Nikita made before he passed away in his last years of life, uh, trying to explain his policies and what he did while he was the uh, first secretary and uh, premier of the uh, Soviet Union. And in particular, the passages I'm going to be reading in these overdrive versions of the uh, podcast relate to the uh, problems with China. Now, many of us in the West didn't understand what was going on because we thought a communist country was a communist country. But obviously, that's not the case. And I'd like you to listen to this biased version. And, and the reason I say biased, this comes from Nikita, and this is how he thought things were going on between his two countries and why there was a schism. And the first part uh, I'm going to be reading is called Origins of the Schism. So here goes it, and I hope you enjoy it. People I meet often tell me it would be particularly interesting if I recorded my memoirs about our country's relations with China. You might say that China is both close to us and far from us. It's close in that it's our next-door neighbor and shares a long border with our country. At the same time, China is far away and that the Chinese have little in common with our people. When I was growing up, Russia had few contacts with China. Before the revolution, people like myself knew nothing about it except what we saw in pictures. If we met any Chinese at all, they were occasional wandering silk merchants. The Russo-Japanese War brought our nations closer together. Russian soldiers fought the Japanese in Manchuria, which was part of China. Then after the October Revolution, the leaders of the Soviet Union established contact with the leader of the Chinese people, Sun Yat-sen, who conducted a Federalist policy during the war. I had some indirect contacts with the Chinese during the Civil War. There were no Chinese in the regiments in which I served, but there were some at our front. I remember that our Red Army soldiers used to say what fierce fighters the Chinese were. Russian troops used to joke about how the Chinese talked. Give bread, me eat bread, machine work. No give bread, machine no work. But indeed, the Chinese were absolutely fearless in battle. They were good soldiers and consequently good comrades in arms. After the Civil War, while I was starting my career as a party organizer in the Donbass, and later, when I was attending the Yazovka Workers' Faculty, I remember our newspapers used to carry reports about China. These articles were, by and large, sympathetic to the Chinese people in their struggle for liberation from foreign domination and for a progressive system of government. When Sun Yat-sen died, Chiang Kai-shek seized power and turned against the communists. Naturally, the sympathies of the Soviet people were on the side of the communists in their war against Chiang Kai-shek and the other oppressors of the Chinese people. I recall one interesting incident which happened in 1927 when I was still head of the organizational section of the party committee for the Yazovka district. 
An acquaintance of mine came by to see me in Yezovka. His name was Akritsky. He was a man whom people of my generation in the Donbass will remember as a hero of the Civil War. He'd achieved fame during the drive against the Germans early in 1919, and later in the war against the White Guards, as the commander of an armored train which bore his name. He was a brave warrior, but I wouldn't say he ever reached a very high level of political maturity. He was half communist, half anarchist, rather like Machno. Akritsky showed up one day at our district party committee headquarters with a party membership card. As usual, he was drunk. Comrade Khrushchev, he said, give me an official letter so that I can go to China right away. I want to fight against Chiang Kai-shek. I want to take part in the attack on Shanghai. I told Akritsky that the Chinese could get along fine without him. They didn't need his help to capture Shanghai when the time was ripe. I'm relating this incident because it illustrates the mood which was whipped up by our communist press. The organizers of the armed struggle against Chiang Kai-shek were well known among our people. Perhaps the most popular of them all was Colonel Chu Tei, the commander of the Chinese Red Army. He was one of the first to raise the banner against the reactionary forces in China. Another well-known hero was Cao Kang. Our people also knew the names of the Communist Party's principal enemies, men like Wu Pei Fu and Chang Tsao Lin, who was considered to be a puppet of Japanese imperialism. Except for the personalities I've mentioned, I didn't know much about the structure of the Chinese Communist Party and its leaders. Liao Shaoqi made a visit to Moscow when I was secretary of the Moscow Party Committee, but I had nothing to do with him. As for Mao Zedong, I'd never even heard of him. China's representative to the common turn was Wang Ming. He was extremely popular among the workers of Moscow because he often used to address meetings. We frequently asked him to visit a factory and deliver a speech, and he'd never refuse. During World War II, we had some contacts with Chiang Kai-shek, and despite his conflict with Chinese Communist Party, Chiang Kai-shek was fighting against Japanese imperialism. Therefore, Stalin, and consequently the Soviet Union, considered Chiang a progressive force. Japan was our number one enemy in the East, so it was in the interest of the Soviet Union to support Chiang. Of course, we supported him only insofar as we didn't want to see him defeated by the Japanese. In much the same way that Churchill, who had been our enemy since the first days of the Soviet Union, was sensible enough to support us in the war against Hitler. The United States began to threaten Japan proper. The Chinese People's Red Army began winning battles against the Japanese. After the defeat of Hitlerite Germany and its allies, the Soviet Union entered the struggle in the East and did its share to defeat Japan in the concluding stages of the war. We began to take greater interest in China than before, and we concentrated our attention on granting the necessary economic and military aid to Mao Zedong in his capacity as leader of the Chinese people, the Communist Party, and the Red Army. He needed our help to crush the Japanese imperialists once and for all. Our advancing army successfully occupied Manchuria. Defeated Japanese laid down their arms, which we then handed over to the Chinese communists. We had certain agreements with our allies concerning the transfer of captured weapons, so we had to avoid giving the impression that we were giving these arms to the Red Army directly. It was explained to me our method was to collect the weapons and leave them somewhere for the Chinese communists to find. 
In that manner, we managed to equip the Red Army in Manchuria with arms which our own army had captured from the Japanese. This was material aid for which the Chinese communists had our government to thank. When I say our government, I mean Stalin. He believed he was the government, and he believed he was acting in the interests of the Chinese people. Even though I was a member of the Politburo, I wasn't let in on all matters which came up between Stalin and the Chinese. I knew only what I was supposed to know. Stalin made countless decisions with respect to China, usually, I think, in consultation with Molotov. At the end of World War II, but before the Chinese communist victory in 1949, Stalin sent comrade Mikoyan to Nanking for talks with Chiang Kai-shek. Anastas Ivanovich was supposed to find out what Chang's needs were and offer him aid. I remember that Stalin used to talk over supper with his inner circle about the situation in China. He used to ask over and over, what kind of man is this Mao Zedong? I don't know anything about him. He's never been to the Soviet Union. Stalin already had his suspicions that Mao held a narrow peasant's position and that he was afraid of urban workers, that he was building his Red Army on an isolated basis, ignoring the working class. The principal evidence for Stalin's doubts was Mao's conduct of the offensive on Shanghai. Chiang Kai-shek could no longer defend the city, yet Mao held the Red Army back and refused to capture Shanghai. It wasn't until Mao came to Moscow late in 1949 that Stalin heard Mao's explanation for the Shanghai offensive, and that explanation completely confirmed Stalin's suspicions. Why didn't you seize Shanghai? asked Stalin. Why should we have, said Mao. If we captured the city, we would have had to take on the responsibility for feeding the six million inhabitants. In his war against the bourgeoisie and the landowners, Mao appeared relied on the peasant masses more than on city dwellers. For some reason, he believed that the peasantry was more revolutionary than the working class. Rather than enter Shanghai and enlist support of the workers there, he'd worried that the job of providing food for the city would detract from his struggle against Chang. When Stalin related this conversation to the rest of us, he said, What kind of man is Mao anyway? He calls himself a Marxist, but he doesn't understand the most elementary Marxist truths. Or maybe he doesn't want to understand them. I agreed with Stalin on that score. I think he was justified in his doubts about Mao. Mao was in Moscow for Stalin's 70th birthday on December 21, 1949. I came up from Kiev and ran into a secretary of the Moscow District Party. Anything new, I asked him. Yeah, he said, we've got this mastodon in town. What the hell is a mastodon? You must mean Mao Zedong, don't you? You know, he said, that Chinaman. In some reports, Stalin was perfectly hospitable to Mao. He gave dinners in his honor. Stalin loved to show off his hospitality to his esteemed guests, and he knew how to do it very well. But during Mao's stay, Stalin would sometimes not lay eyes on him for days at a time. And since Stalin neither saw Mao nor ordered anyone else to entertain him, no one dared to see him. Rumors began reaching our ears that Mao was not at all happy, and that he was under lock and key, and that everyone was ignoring him. Mao let it be known if the situation continued, he would leave. When Stalin heard about Mao's complaints, I think he had another dinner for him. 
Stalin was anxious to create the impression that we were on the best of terms with Mao and firmly on the side of the Chinese people. Finally, the Chinese delegation left Moscow and returned to Peking. About that time, the question of Sin Qiang came up. And I can't remember whether Stalin discussed the problem directly with Mao while he was in Moscow, or whether the matter was handled through Comrade Mikoyan, who was our first representative sent to China to deal with Mao. During the war, we had occupied and fortified Xinjiang, sealing it off against Chiang Kai-shek. Our occupation of the province had been in the interests of both the Soviet Union and the Chinese Communists. By the time the Communists defeated Chiang and came to power in China, we were in charge of Xinjiang. We had our own people there, and the whole province was working for us. However, after the Red Army's victory, Stalin acknowledged to Mao that Xinjiang belonged to China. Then Stalin made a serious mistake. He suggested to Mao that we organize an international society for the exploitation of natural resources in Xinjiang. The Chinese accepted the proposal without objection, but they were undoubtedly not pleased with the idea. They must have felt that the Soviet Union had certain designs on Xinjiang and that the international society represented an encroachment on Chinese territory and independence. Thus, Stalin sowed the seeds of hostility and anti-Soviet, anti-Russian feeling in China. I told Stalin that the Chinese would probably object to our trying to get trading concessions from them in the same way the English, Portuguese, and other foreigners had in the past. Why are you sticking your nose in this, snapped Stalin. It's none of your business. With that, he dictated a message to Mao asking for suitable territory on which to set up a rubber plantation. Sometime later, we received a cable from Mao containing his reply. There were a number of people present when we read Mao's response to Stalin's proposal. We agreed to establish a rubber plantation for you on the island of Hainan, off the coast of Vietnam. But we do so with certain conditions. Specifically, we would propose that you give us the credits, machinery, and technical assistance necessary to build and operate the plantation by ourselves. We will repay you for this help by sending you shipments of rubber. There was a long silence after Stalin finished reading Mao's message. I avoided Stalin's eyes because I knew he hadn't forgotten my warning against making such a proposal in the first place. Now Mao's reply came as a bitter pill to swallow. Mao, of course, was absolutely right to have responded as he did. He wasn't trying to be offensive. He was simply emphasizing China's rights and pride. We agreed to the Chinese counter-proposal and gave them the help they asked for to establish the rubber plantation. But nothing came of it in the end. I don't think the Chinese were very enthusiastic about the project. They paid us back for our tractors and loans, but we didn't get any rubber out of the bargain. The incident must have left its mark on Mao. Like Stalin, Mao wasn't one to forgive, much less to forget. His experience with Stalin, first over Xinjiang and now over the rubber plantation, was sufficient to convince him that Stalin's policy towards China had much in common with the imperialist policies of the capitalist countries. Also, like Stalin, Mao was deeply suspicious. Therefore, the concrete evidence for distrusting Stalin was magnified many times by his suspiciousness. However, Mao was careful not to show what he was really thinking. He went out of his way to show his respect, even his humility and deference towards Stalin. For example, 
Mao appealed to Stalin to recommend a literate Marxist-Leninist theoretician who could help him edit the speeches and articles he had written during the Civil War. Mao was preparing to publish his collected works and wanted him to know that he could check his writings for possible errors. Stalin, needless to say, was delighted. He took Mao's request as a sign that Mao had no pretensions to any special role in the theory and practice of building socialism in China. Stalin thought Mao was expressing his willingness to look at the world through Stalin's eyes. Of course, that's just what Mao wanted Stalin to think. I believe that, in fact, Mao had other fish to fry, and subsequent events show that he did indeed. Stalin replied to Mao's request by sending Yudin to Peking. It was no accident that Stalin chose Yudin for the job of helping Mao prepare his works for publication. Yudin was a philosopher, and therefore someone Mao could talk to about philosophy. Mao liked to engage in high-flown discourse, and he used to force all kinds of philosophical subjects upon the mere mortals with whom he came into contact, myself included. As soon as Yudin got to Peking, he began sending back a stream of telegrams gushing with enthusiasm for Mao Zedong. Yudin said Mao used to come to see him, rather than the other way around, and they'd sit with each other into the small hours of the morning, not so much editing Mao's writings as discussing weighty topics. All this was fine with us. After all, as the peasants used to say, give the baby anything to keep it happy, as long as it doesn't cry. Although he established good relations with Mao and contributed to Sino-Soviet friendship in his capacity as the editor of Mao's works, Yudin didn't become our ambassador to China until after Stalin's death. Instead, Stalin appointed a railroad expert who'd been a people's commissar during the war. I forget his name, but I remember that after the defeat of the Japanese in northern China, Stalin sent this man to supervise the reconstruction of the Manchurian railroads and act as our plenipotentiary representative in Manchuria. He had confidence in him. Stalin considered him personal trusty. This representative of ours, Panyushkin, began showering us with reports that there were many people in the Chinese leadership who were actively dissatisfied with the Soviet Union and our party. According to him, our most vocal opponents were Liu Shaoqi, Chao Wenlai, and others. Mao wasn't among those mentioned, nor was he taking any steps against his colleagues who were spreading anti-Soviet sentiments in the Chinese leadership. Stalin circulated some of these documents from our ambassador, and that's how I was able to familiarize myself with their contents. Apparently, much of this information about the mood in the Chinese party came to us from Cao Kang, who was then the representative of the Chinese Politburo and governor in Manchuria, where he'd been on close terms with our own representatives. On one occasion where Cao Kang had his headquarters, the Chinese officers were complaining about the reconditioned Soviet tanks we'd given Mao for his army. The Russians have dumped a lot of old, beat-up tanks for us, they grumbled. Whenever there's deep, underlying discontent, every minor detail gets blown out of proportion and becomes grounds for leveling serious charges against the Soviet Union. Stalin decided he wanted to win Mao's trust and friendship, so he took Panyushkin's reports about his conversations with Cao Kang and handed them over to Mao, saying, Here, you might be interested in these. God only knows what Stalin thought he was doing. 
He justified it as a friendly gesture. If you're looking for historical parallels, you could compare it to the incident compare the incident to the famous case in which Kuchubai informed Peter the Great about Mazpa's treason. Peter, seeking to win Mazpa over to his side, then told Mezpa about Kochubai's denunciation. As a result, Mezpa executed Kochubai and joined forces with Charles XII in his campaign against Russia. Pushkin tells the whole story in his poem, Poltava. What Peter did to Kochubai, Stalin did to Kao Kang. And what Mezpa did to Kochubai, Mao did to Kao Kang. At first, Mao isolated Kao Kang within the leadership. Our representatives in Peking reported that they'd been at a party with a lot of young people who got drunk and began making angry remarks to our diplomats about your man, Kao Kang. At the time, Kao Kang was still in the Chinese Politburo, but we knew he was already on ice. Then we learned that Mao had put him under house arrest. Later, we learned he'd poisoned himself. I doubt very much that Kao Kang committed suicide. Most probably, Mao had him strangled or poisoned. Mao was capable of such things, just as Stalin was. In that respect, too, Mao and Stalin were kindred spirits. Because of Stalin's betrayal of Kao Kang, we were deprived of a man who proved his friendship and supplied us with valuable information about the true attitude of the Chinese leadership toward the Soviet Union. Why did Stalin betray Kao Kang? I think he was motivated by his own suspiciousness. As he himself said, Stalin didn't trust anyone, not even himself. He figured that sooner or later, Mao would have learned on his own that Kao Kang had been informing on him. And if that had happened, Mao could accuse Stalin of fomenting opposition to the Chinese government. So Stalin decided it would be better to sacrifice Kao Kang and thereby earn Mao's trust. However, I don't think Mao ever really trusted Stalin. He saw that Stalin was always trying to prove his superiority. I'm convinced that Mao saw through Stalin's diplomacy and was secretly annoyed and alarmed by it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, next time on the Overdrive uh, version of the Russian Rulers History Podcast, we'll have a reading from the same book, and this has to do with uh, Khrushchev's first visit to Peking as he calls it, which we now know as the uh, city of Beijing. So uh, regular episode number 95 will be coming out either Sunday or Monday, and the next episode of The Overdrive will come out next week. So hope you enjoyed it, and as always, tasvidanya, spasiba bolshoya.